many years ago when I first came to Christ, I had a uh, fellow that uh, mentored me, a uh, guy actually that was a few years younger than me, a fellow by the name of Mike Kahn. Mike's our uh, associational executive director now. He succeeded Tom as the head of our Baptist churches here in the uh, Tampa Bay Baptist Association. But back then, he was an engineer at Tampa Electric Company. I worked at Tampa Electric Company. We worked downtown at the plaza. And so, as a new Christian, he, he challenged me. He, we began praying together regularly uh, downtown. He, he uh, taught me about fasting. Um, it's a lesson that hadn't stuck quite as well in these latter years, but uh, he introduced me to it. And so we would fast one day a month. We would go over to the Presbyterian Church downtown. We'd pray and fast together through lunch. And um, he taught me about witnessing. We would go down. He challenged me. We'll go down on the, the plaza downtown, and we'll find people. We'll look for God to lead us to somebody down there to share the gospel with. So we would go down on Tico Plaza and uh, down in the, you know, the food court on Franklin Street down there, and we would accost people at their lunchtime when they didn't want to be bothered. And sometimes we would go over to the Riverwalk, back where, if you've been a long-time resident of Tampa, where Curtis Six Convention Center used to be, was still there when I was working at Tampa Electric Company. We would go over on the sidewalk that ran along the river that had benches there where people would reclude for lunch to eat their sandwich and read a book and not be bothered. We would go over there and bother them and... You know, our, our approach was always, can I, can I share with you the most important thing that's ever been shared with me? And what we found typically was is that people would be polite, you know, but there, typically, there would be a, sometimes a look of exasperation on their faces. Sometimes you'd get a deep sigh. <sighs> okay. And they'd put their book down. And you, you know, but we didn't care because it was all about us. <laughs> we just wanted to share the gospel, right? So uh, anyway. One day, we, we, we determined a strategy. We weren't having a whole lot of success in people receiving Christ. It may have had something to do with the fact that we were interrupting their lunch and they resented us from the get-go. But anyway, we decided one of us would pray, one of us would, would uh, find a place to pray, and the other would go out and witness and then come back and the other would be praying for the one that was witnessing and who they were witnessing to and all that sort of thing. So one day, it was my turn to go out and witness, and Mike was going to pray. And so where we would launch from was the McDonald's downtown. He'd stay at McDonald's and, and pray. I was going to go out and share. As we turned the corner to go up to McDonald's, I saw a sea of people sitting out on the grass in front of Curtis Hickson Convention Center. I mean, they were just wall to wall. Obviously, it was lunchtime, so they were eating sandwiches out on the grass and I looked and I went oh my gosh what is this because this is this is the pool of people from whom to draw there's going to be no privacy as such to engage in conversation because these people are wall to wall and as we turn to go into the McDonald's I look at the sign out in front of Curtis Hicks and Convention Center to see well, what is going on who are these people and it was the Florida bar exams these were all young prospective attorneys that were there at Curtis Hickson to take their bar exams. And now this was lunch, and they were sitting out on the grass, studying some of them, taking a breather from the bar exam. And I know in just a few minutes as we pray together and Mike launches me that I'm going to wade into this sea of people and see if God will lead me to one that I might share the gospel with. And my heart was beating a thousand beats a minute. 
I was trying to think of some good way that I could tell Mike, you know, my leg's broke. Maybe you ought to go witness today. But there was this, there was this great reservation, this great trepidation about going and finding somebody, notwithstanding the fact that there were hundreds of people over there to go share with, the vast majority of them, no doubt, without any relationship with Christ, but I was looking for a way to not go share. So I did go share, by the way, but, you know, that's, we've all felt that feeling, you know, when we knew it was the moment in which the gospel needed to be shared with someone, maybe someone near to us, maybe someone not so near to us, maybe a circumstance that God has engineered and the Holy Spirit's pressing upon us, or, or maybe one that's been festering for a long time, a relative that we know doesn't know Jesus, and we've, we've known it for a long time, and now we're, we're just looking for an opportunity to share, and, but there's still this trepidation for fear that we're not going to be received well, ultimately. It's all about us is the reason that we don't. I'm confident we've all experienced that. This morning, I want to come to you with some encouraging words. We're going to look at a passage where God addresses a not dissimilar issue with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18. So open your Bibles there this morning. Last week, we left off with Paul in Athens, where he'd confronted all of these secular philosophers there. They had an altar to an unknown God, and he said, I can tell you about that God, and he proceeded to tell them about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as man's Messiah, the one, the one sent from God, the one ordained from God that would, that would give leadership to all mankind, that came and died on the cross for their sins, was dead, buried, and rose from the dead, and the Athenian scholars and philosophers knew of no God in their pantheon that cared that much for human beings. In their minds, for many of them, the gods were all doing their own things, and they didn't give one wit about human beings. And so that was just, that was an astonishing thing to them, and they knew of no god that died for men and rose to life. And so as you can imagine, that caused quite a stir amongst the Athenian philosophers. Some of them believed, but it doesn't seem by reading the Scripture that the response there was as great. It wasn't as great a city for one thing, but the response there was not as great as experienced in some other cities. So Paul left Athens after sharing the gospel there, and he travels to Corinth about 50 miles south. And as he, as he comes to Corinth, he confronts a, a population that is, there's, there's a lot of worship of Greek gods, as there is in most of the cities, Greek and Roman gods throughout the Roman Empire, but they've got a number of temples there to Apollo, the sun god, and to Asclepius, and to there's a big temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It stands on the Acrocorinth, a big hill that rises hundreds of feet above the city and overlooks the city. A temple at one point that had upwards of a thousand temple prostitutes, fertility rites that took place there. Corinth was also a seaport. It was a major port that, that controlled east-west traffic, trade routes in the Roman Empire. And so you had a lot of sailors there, often on shore leave as they were getting supplies, dropping things off, preparing to go in the other direction, or crossing the isthmus there where they would actually drag the boats over land for a, a ways that was not too far and launch them on the other side in the Aegean Sea. So the, um, you put sailors and prostitutes together and, and you kind of, you get the picture of the nature 
of the city. It was a city of great immorality, but it wasn't that different from many other Roman, large Roman cities, large population there, and not that much different from many cities, many locales, many communities today. When you look at the kind of, of immorality that's occurring in our society today, it's, it's, it's not that different from many places in the United States of America. In the opening verses of Acts chapter 18, we learn, we meet a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. They'd come from Rome, and they had come when the emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews, is what it says in the scripture. According to the Roman historian Suetonius, there was an ongoing disturbance amongst, amongst the Jews that apparently had to do with Christ. There was this argument between Jews of the old guard and those who had come to know Jesus Christ that was going on. And the Jews that did not accept Jesus Christ were adamant in their refusal. And so there was disturbance made in Rome. And Claudius had enough of it and expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Aquila and Priscilla landed in Corinth, Jewish Christians. They land in Corinth, and because they practiced the same trade as the Apostle Paul, he worked with them, he stayed with them, and every Sabbath, the Scripture tells us, he was down at the synagogue sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. There were Greeks there that sought after the one true monotheistic, the one true and living God, and so they would come down and learn of God at the, at the synagogue as well. In verse 5, we learn that Silas and Timothy eventually joined Paul, and when they joined Paul, he's freed up to share the gospel every day. And we don't know if they arrived and went to work and allowed Paul the freedom to do that, or if they arrived with a gift of support. Paul actually thanks the Christians at Philippi for a gift that they sent to him, and Timothy and Silas have come from the Macedonian churches. So they may have come with a gift of support from Philippi or from other Christians at other churches that allowed Paul. But in any event, when Timothy and Silas arrives, Paul's able to go to the church and, and teach every day about Jesus. As he shares more and more about Jesus the Messiah, verse 6 said that some of the Jews became abusive. And at that point, Paul said, when they become abusive, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left the synagogue, and he went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And verse 8 says that Crispus, the synagogue leader in his entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And so we have a church established in Corinth, but it's, once again, not established without opposition, something that Paul is very familiar with. So far, Paul, in his, in his missionary journeys, in our study of the book of Acts, Paul has been opposed by a Jewish sorcerer at Paphos, by secular philosophers in Athens, by the Jewish religious leaders in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Thessalonica, and Berea. In Lystra, he was stoned to the point that the Jews thought he was dead. And in Philippi, he was beaten with rods and placed in prison in stocks. Now, in Corinth, once again, he faces opposition. In the NIV, verse 6 says the Jews opposed him and were 
abusive. Holman says they resisted him and blasphemed. Other translations say they insulted him and they, they reviled him. I mean, they, were, they are really, they're pushing back abusively against Paul. And so it's no wonder that in response, verse 6 says, he shook the dust from his robes. I mean, he just made a, a physical show that I'm done. He said, your blood is on your own heads. This is, this is on you. I'm innocent of it. His impatience with the Jews, or his patience with the Jews has been exhausted. And he may well have been thinking to himself as they became abusive with him, what next, you know? What will they do? They're, they're being verbally abusive now. What will they do next? What will they accuse me of? And all of the other places he had been, false charges typically were brought against him. How will I be judged? Who will judge me? And what will be my punishment? This is a moment in which Paul seems to be discouraged by the response of his countrymen, his, his fellow Jews. And as, as I was reading this, I had to, I had to put things into temporal context because I, I knew that I had read of Paul in Romans 9-2 where he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my kinsmen, the people of Israel. In Romans, he says, I would be willing to sacrifice my own salvation for my countrymen, for my, for my fellow Jews, if they would just come to an understanding of Christ. But Romans is written several years after the book that we're, we're looking at, after his time in, in Corinth. And so he's, he's not reached this place of maturity, perhaps. I don't know. Here, he, is, he seems very frustrated, and he's not saying, I would that I were cut off from Christ. He's telling them, your blood is on your own head. In verse 9 in Acts 18, Luke writes, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and he said, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Paul, Paul had to have been discouraged. In, in the roughly four to five years of his ministry, he's about four to five years into his ministry and in the midst of his second missionary journey now, he's traveled at this point over 2,000 miles, most of it by foot, most of it walking. I mean, this is hard to fathom somebody walking that many miles, but in four or five years, you could do it in the process Many had come to Christ, but many more had rejected the good news. And Paul had paid a high personal price with the abusive treatment that he had received, the stonings, the beatings, the imprisonment. But God had told him at the beginning that suffering would accompany the work. And in fact, in Acts 14, 22, we looked at it just a, a couple of weeks ago, Paul had said the very same to the Christians in Galatia on his first missionary journey as he as he went back through, he had made one pass through, planted churches, and then he went back through to all the churches he had planted. And he told them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul was clearly aware that hardship was a part 
of what was going to take place, God tells him here, don't be afraid, because here, Paul is the one that is experiencing fear and anxiety. Even knowing hardship's going to take place, Paul is experiencing fear and anxiety. You know, we have this tendency to make Paul, and, and a lot of biblical characters, we make them out to be supermen. We make them out to be superhero kind of individuals that we look at and we say, well, I could never, I could never be like that. And I, trust me, I'm not going to, to lower Paul down <laughs> to my level. He's still a superhero. He's still the greatest evangelist that ever lived, but he was a human being. And don't think for a moment that Paul didn't suffer anxiety and, and, and fearfulness on the same order that all the rest of us do. And this is one of those occasions. We all face difficulty and hardships in our life. And, and, and I want to stipulate one thing as well. As you think in terms of, okay, I can compare my hardships to the Apostle Paul. He experiences fear and anxiety, and I have hardship, and I experience the same thing. Many of our hardships are self-inflicted. We spend in irresponsible ways. We fail to prioritize our families and relationships become fractured. We, we focus often on our own discomfort. We make things all about us and we entertain ourselves in, in unhealthy and unprofitable ways. Ultimately, in doing that, what we do is we fail to prioritize our relationship with Jesus. We fail to surrender to the Spirit of God. We refuse to relinquish complete control of our lives with Paul, that, that was typically not the case. Paul was surrendered to God, and that's why we see the Holy Spirit using him so mightily. And the same thing applies to us. As we choose to set these other things aside and surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God, God will use us as he used Paul. Paul Paul's hardships were typically exclusively a function of his witness for Jesus. And if you choose to follow Christ, if you choose to be a disciple, then just like Paul, you are assigned the task of sharing with others about Jesus Christ. All of us are. And if you identify yourself with Jesus, here's the catch. We've all got this assignment. If you identify yourselves with Jesus, you will face opposition. Before I became a Christian, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I, I, I thought he was just the guy that said no to everything that I wanted to do. I thought people who said they believed in Jesus were, were weird, ones I met. I thought they were naive. I thought they were unsophisticated. I thought they were foolish in their beliefs. I, I shared a quote with you last week from Richard Dawkins, a, a leading atheist in our times, and Dawkins said, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. And had I heard that quote before I became a Christian, I would have agreed with it completely, wholeheartedly. I remember distinctly, after I came to Christ, the first person that I had to share with Jesus with, he was a friend that I, I carpooled with, who we'll call Tom, because that was actually his name, Tom. 
the reason that I had to tell Tom was because Tom and I had established this routine of every Friday stopping at a, a pub on the way home and having a pitcher of beer, which typically became two pitchers of beer and sometimes became more than that. Our, our, our habit was Friday night excessive drinking on the way home, which is what our, our habit was. I became a follower of Jesus Christ on a Thursday night. So the next day, I was going to have to come face to face with this issue with Tom. And, and I didn't feel like telling Tom, yeah, we'll go by the pub, but I'm just going to drink Sprite was going to get the job done. You know, this was the moment in which Tom needed to understand things had changed in my life. And so as I was driving on this particular day, it was my turn to drive, um, headed home, hoping Tom would forget that it was Friday, uh, hoping he wouldn't notice that I was heading home and wouldn't say anything. But true to form, Tom said, are we going to the pub? And recognizing this is the moment that I could seize upon, I said, no, I can't. And he said, why not? And I said, yeah, I just got to get home tonight. And we drove home. But Fridays, being what Fridays are, there was one coming up seven days later. <laughs> that, that was not to be the end of the discussion because the next Friday we were just going to go through the motions all over again and I, I couldn't pull out, I've just got to get home tonight every Friday night. The issue had to be addressed. So the next Friday, driving home, Tom driving, headed straight to the pub, he says, so we're going to the pub tonight, right? And I said, no, Tom, I'm, I'm not going to be going to the pub with you anymore. He said, why not? And I said, well, Tom, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ last week, and I, I just, I really don't think that's something that he wants me to do. And he looked at me, and he said, are you serious? And I said, absolutely, I'm serious. And he laughed at me. I mean, he laughed the most derisive laugh that you can possibly imagine and then said, I'll give you two weeks. It won't last. I'll give you two weeks. And so the very thing that I, I was trying, I, I didn't want to experience, you know, he, he, was, he, he did exactly what I expected. The thing I wanted to avoid, laughing at me. Somebody think I'm, I'm naive and and foolish. That's what keeps so many of us from speaking the name of Jesus. We anticipate opposition, and rightfully so. It's not just a matter of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you identify yourself with Jesus Christ, if people know you're a Christian, then when you do open your mouth to speak, they will be prepared, and you at some point are going to receive opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew this. He had experienced this. But still, after so much opposition, there was, there was a point at, even, at which even the Apostle Paul became discouraged to the point that God needed to speak to that need for encouragement. And God spoke the same thing to Paul that he speaks to us today. You know, don't, don't be discouraged. Don't be fearful. Don't be terrified. Same thing he spoke to Mary and Joseph 
when they learned, when, when Mary found out that she was going to bear the child, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, don't you think there was some anxiety that rose up in their hearts? Anxiety with regard to how, how will we explain this pregnancy? But, but beyond that, anxiety with regard to how do you raise the, the Son of God? How do you raise God's Messiah? How, I don't know how to be a parent. How am I supposed to raise the Messiah of God? Don't you think there was, there was fear and anxiety associated with that? And what was God's word to them? God's word to them was, was, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am in the midst of this. And so it's the same thing that he says to the Apostle Paul, the same thing he says to us today when the great foreign powers, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, threatened God's people. God's people had been disobedient for so long. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians came as, as, as God's judgment upon Israel and Judah. But in the very midst of it, God spoke to his, his disobedient people through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 41.8. And he said, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, I've chosen you, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the furthest corners, I called you. I said, I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you, despite all of your unfaithfulness. So, do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I'm God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hand. And as God speaks this to these people, they're going to go into exile. He's not telling them, I will protect you from all harm that comes your way. I'm going to, I'm going to protect you from all difficulty. What he's telling them is, is, I chose you. Even though you rejected me, I've not rejected you. I chose you. So in the midst of what takes place, don't be dismayed when you go into to exile. I am with you. I'm your God. If you will allow me, I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And he says the same thing to us today. Faithful, unfaithful. God says, man, I'm your God and I chose you before you chose me. I'm your God and I will be with you. And I will uphold you. Don't be dismayed at how people respond. Don't be dismayed. In anything you see happening, I'm your God because I chose you and I'm with you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'll strengthen you. I'll protect you. It may be difficult the going and you may encounter obstacles in opposition, but trust me, maybe you've experienced some opposition in the past that's discouraged you and consequently you've, you've not been vocal about your relationship with Jesus, these words of God to faithful Paul and the unfaithful Israel were words God wants us to embrace. Do not fear, I've chosen you, I will be your strength. God also told Paul specifically in the midst of his discouragement, because God could see where that discouragement was going, he said, keep on speaking, do not be silent. I mean, apparently Paul had some instinct to say, you know what, I'm just not going to say anything. When I open my mouth, it's trouble that comes my way. There must have been something about Paul that, 
that this thought had entered his mind, and God says to him, don't, don't, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Fear of what people might think of us or, or what they might do to us is, is, it instills anxiety and fear that oftentimes paralyzes when it comes to speaking boldly about Jesus. God says, don't be afraid. Speak up. I'll protect you, those who oppose you. Do you no harm? We all understand the, the reality that a, a majority of the people in the United States say they believe in God. Many say they believe in Jesus. But not many want to acknowledge their, their need for the shed blood of Jesus. Not many want to acknowledge that they are sinners destined to an eternal separation from God. Many are banking on their, 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 their good deeds outweighing their bad deeds. I, I find this all the time. Amongst people that claim to be Christians, people that say they believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ, believe he died on the cross, believe he was dead, buried, and raised from the dead. But they're still thinking in terms of, man, I just gotta, I gotta balance that scale. I just gotta have a few more good deeds and bad deeds and God will accept me. They don't wanna hear about the shed blood of Jesus Christ that, that eliminates the, the weighing of the scales, that there's no way we can make that happen. Ultimately, they don't wanna consider themselves bad people. And the scripture says that the heart is deceitfully wicked people don't they look at themselves in the mirror and they don't they have no concept of of how vile their lives are in the sight of a righteous god and so they look at themselves as i'm i'm not that bad an individual i don't need somebody to die on the cross for me what i found is is when you come to christ the holy spirit works in your your heart he opens your eyes to who you are then you see that clearly and we understand that. Those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we understand the deep need that we have. We understand the grace of God and the mercy that resides in forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But, man, it's only when God opens your eyes to that. And most people aren't there. They can say they believe in all kinds of things because they were raised in the church as kids and they've always heard about Jesus. And so they mentally assent to that cultural, ancestral religion. But... They don't really believe in, in God. So, man, but the, the reality that, that speaking to these people, that man, they don't want to talk about Jesus and how they may respond to us, their religious private and you know, whatever, it cows us into a silence about Jesus Christ. Many people don't want to speak about Jesus, but there are some that are still hungry for the gospel. Uh, I was listening to a, a message that David Platt shared uh, on the uh, internet the other day, and, and he was talking about a woman, uh, he was talking about a class he had in college. It was a speech class, a communications class, and he had to give a speech in it. And so he decided that he was gonna incorporate the gospel into his, his speech, in his class. This is a, Secular college now. He's not at seminary. He's not at Bible school. He's at a secular college. And so it's, it's a typical thing you'd expect David Platt to do, right? Um, if any of you are in college, it might be something you give thought to. So anyway, he incorporates Jesus into his speech that he gives in class. And he said he endeavored to present Christ in as winsome a way as he possibly could. 
And he said as soon as the speech was over, there was a girl in the back whose hand shot up. And he, he recognized her. And she said, are you telling me that if I don't put my faith in your God, in your Jesus Christ, that I'm going to go to hell for all eternity? And he said he took a minute and, and prayed and said, God, give me some words to speak. He said there was deathly silence in the class as everybody waited to see how he was going to respond. And he said, you know, God loves you so much. God's love for you is so great that he sent Jesus to die on your behalf. We've done things. We choose to do things to separate ourselves from God. God is a holy and righteous and just God, and we intentionally choose to do things that separate us from God, but God was not content with that, that separation, and so he sent Jesus to die for us. But if we choose to reject Jesus, he, that's the only pathway, that's the only avenue. So if you, if you choose to reject the, the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that God has shown through Jesus Christ, then, then yes, yes, that's you, you, you will spend eternity separated from God. And he said hands went up all over the class, and he sweated through all the questions, and Eventually, his, his, his trial came to an end, and he said at the end of class, the girl came up to him and said, I just want you to know, that is the most arrogant thing I have ever heard anybody say. And she was out the door, angry. At he said it was some semesters later, after going on break and coming back to school, he ran in to this girl in a class. He walked in, and there she was sitting right in front of him. And he said, she turned around and said, hey, I want to talk to you after class. And he went, oh, okay, if, if you insist. And so after class, he, he said, so hey, what's going on? And she said, I just, I wanted you to know, over break, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I just, you know, thanks for sharing with me when you did. I, I got it from a number of different directions and I've put my faith and trust in Christ. You see, so many times there, there are people out there that are going to reject, but there are people out there that are going to accept, and we never know who those are. And we may be sowing seed that somewhere down the line God is going to use in a person's life to bring them into relationship with Christ. And it's ours simply to be obedient in the sharing. Ultimately, we don't bring anybody to Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings people to Christ. It's just ours to give voice, to be obedient to God, to give voice to that gospel that's been shared with us that hopefully has revolutionized our lives. In verse 12, it says, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia is a province in Rome in which Corinth resided. Gallio is a proconsul of the governor of the, the province. The Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. Paul was concerned about resistance, about opposition, because they had abused him in the synagogue, and then God tells him, don't worry, I'll protect you, don't be afraid, don't be silent, keep on sharing about Jesus, and I'll take care of you. And what happens? Sure enough, the Jews rise up against him, they, a united attack on Paul, they bring him to a place of judgment, in verse 13 this man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary 
to our law. Sounds like a familiar charge, right? It's the same charge that was made against Paul in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea. He teaches things that are contrary to the laws and the customs of our country. He's talking about another king. This is the same charge that was brought against Jesus. It's treason. It's sedition. He's talking about us worshiping another king. In verse 14, the charge is leveled against Paul. Verse 14, Paul's prepared to make his defense, about to speak. And Gallio speaks up. Hold on. If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or some serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And so he drove them off. He, he, this word, he drove them off, means he basically he said, after the charge was made, Paul starts to speak. He says, hold on just a minute. You know what? This is, this is your business. This is about your religion. This has absolutely nothing to do with me. You guys go settle this yourselves. Get out of my sight. Get out of here. You're wasting my time by bringing this before me. And he drove them out. And in the next verse, 17, it says, Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. I mean, Sosthenes is the synagogue ruler, apparently, that took the place of Crispus. You remember Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his whole family came to Christ. He resigned his position as synagogue leader. He, has, he aligned himself with Jesus. He became a, a, a follower, a disciple of Paul as Paul followed Jesus. He was learning about Jesus from Paul. He was at Titus Justices right next door to the synagogue. He had resigned himself. Sosthenes had become the synagogue ruler. He's probably wondering at this point, why in the world did I ever take this job as the crowd is wailing on him? We don't know which crowd it was exactly. We don't know if it was a crowd of Jews that are beating Sosthenes up because they feel like he gave a, a, a flawed defense of their position that Gallio didn't want to listen to, or, or more likely, a crowd of Gentiles. There was an anti-Semitic current that ran through many of these communities, and so it may well be that Gallio has been so abusive with these Jews it brought the charges that the Gentiles there that are, that are feeding, they're being fed by that anti-Semitic ethic, turn on Sosthenes and start beating Sosthenes up. Either way, as a result, they, result they, they, this crowd turns on Sosthenes and beating. In verse 18, it says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed Syria. One other thing that I want to note about Sosthenes is that after Paul left Corinth and he returned to Antioch, his, his home church, he then embarked on a third missionary journey that took him to Ephesus, and we'll read about that in coming weeks. While he was at Ephesus, he stayed at Ephesus for about three years, so this is a number of years later. While he, he was at Ephesus, he wrote a letter back to Corinth, to the church at Corinth, and he sent the letter. When you look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, the opening salutation indicates that the letter is from 
the Apostle Paul, and our brother Sosthenes. So when you look at Paul's letter, he opened these letters in, in, with salutation, including a number of different people from, from Timothy to Silas and Titus. I mean, he, he, he opens and closes often with the people that are accompanying him, the people that are attending to him, the people that are, he's bouncing ideas off of as he constructs these letters, and the Holy Spirit leads him. On this particular occasion, he mentions no one else with him except Brother Sosthenes. This is a name that the Corinthians would have known. This is a name that they would have remembered. And my money is on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler. And I don't know how Sosthenes came to Christ, but I, I wonder if maybe Crispus, the former synagogue ruler, went to Sosthenes in the aftermath of his being beaten severely and was instrumental in ministering to his wounds and being the very body of Christ to him, being that incarnational ministry to Sosthenes and sharing with him about Jesus Christ. And, and so consecutive synagogue rulers came to Christ and became part of the church. Some speculation on my part, but but seems seems to me like that's the case. This one we'll find out when we get to heaven. This is this is how important it is, though, to be witnesses for Christ. Though Paul became discouraged by the persecution that he experienced, even tempted perhaps to remain silent because, because of his boldness, Crispus and potentially Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, leaders among the Jews and many other Jews and Greeks became followers of Jesus. And what we need to understand is, again, we don't persuade. It's not a, not, we're not the ones that save. God's the one that does that work. Salvation is his work. It's the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of individuals. But God is at work in the hearts of people today. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to, to send workers out into the harvest. And so my challenge this morning is that we as a people would pray to the Lord of the harvest to send harvesters. And, and our prayer can't be, you know, God, you know the breadth of the harvest. You know how great it is. You know where it is exactly. You know the fruit to be harvested. You know how great it is. Lord, send workers to the harvest. Send workers to the harvest. Just don't send me out into the harvest. Send other people out into the harvest. Let there be a lot of workers go out into the harvest, but don't send me. If we're going to pray to God to send workers to the harvest, we've got to pray, send me. Send a great number of workers into the harvest and send me. I want to be one of those workers. I want to be a part of that crew that goes out and brings the harvest in. It's, it's to us to to take up that mantle. If you find this intimidating this morning, this idea of going into the harvest and being that one, despite intimidation, that speaks the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then embrace the words God spoke to Paul. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Think about Paul's words as he wrote to the Christians at Ephesus many years later. 
He's speaking to them about prayer and, and in speaking and challenging them to embrace prayer and to engage in prayer. He says to them, and in your prayers, pray for me also that whenever I speak, words may be given to me by the Spirit of God that I will fearlessly boldly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, boldly, as I should. This, is, this should be our prayer. This is our call. We're the ones that should be sharing, that should be speaking boldly, that should be ones that have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing the way it's revolutionized our lives, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of salvation unto all that believe, to the Jews, to the Greeks, to everybody. And I know it's powerful because I know how it's changed my life. It's a powerful thing, and I'm not ashamed of it. We ought to be the ones that, that can embrace that as well and say, pray for me. I want to be bold in speaking the name of Jesus Christ to people that need to hear the name of Jesus Christ, as the Spirit of God leads in the harvest, ones that are helping bring in that harvest. This is my challenge to us that we would pray this today. Today. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we, we need you. Lord, we are, we're so inclined to wander, Father, to, to seek a place of comfort and ease. We're so inclined towards a self-centeredness that we, we think of ourselves and, and our comfort and, and our convenience. Lord, we don't like opposition. God, we certainly don't like being ridiculed or reviled or humiliated or verbally abused, God, we, we, we don't like those things. But Lord, we recognize that the message we have is one that we know is not going to be received by a great many. Many are called, but, but there, there are few chosen. The, the, the path that's most are on, that, that, that wide path that the world travels on, that's packed with people, Father, it's one that's contrasted with a narrow road that, that so few find. And so, God, we recognize that, that the vast majority of people do not want to be burdened or bothered by Jesus Christ, don't want to view themselves as sinners that need a Savior. And, and yet still, there are many out there, a, a minority, but, but many out there that will, if we will just speak the word, God, ones that you're at work in their heart, that you would give us the privilege to be a part of seeing them come into relationship with you. Lord, our prayer this morning is, is that you would send us out into the harvest. And God, that as you send us out into the harvest, we would be faithful to go, that we would be faithful to speak, that we would not be silent, but that we would keep on speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would speak into our hearts by your spirit, by the power of your spirit, a great holy boldness and, and fearlessness to speak even when Satan wants to instill those, 
those, those thoughts, that temptation to be reticent and timid about sharing about Jesus, God, that we would be bold and fearless. Lord, you, you do the work. We, we confess that. We recognize we, we don't have to be clever. We don't, we don't have to be persuasive. God, we don't, we don't have to argue people into the kingdom. All we have to do is share what's been shared with us about the Jesus Christ that's changed our lives, the one who, who came as God's Messiah, died on the cross, paid the price for our sins, and rose from the dead to assure us that he has the power over death, hell, and the grave. God, make us bold in sharing about Jesus, that we would honor you in it, God. Let us know your pleasure when we stand boldly, when we speak boldly for you, for your honor your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name.